welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Southwest Airlines is stepping up engine inspections as the discount carrier grapples with its first accident to result in a passenger's death. One woman died after shrapnel from a blown engine tore through a window about 20 minutes into flight 1380 from New York to Dallas on Tuesday. Southwest Chief Executive Officer Gary Kelly had a message for the passengers. We will do all that we can to support them during this difficult time and the difficult days ahead. I am immensely grateful there are no other reports of injuries, but truly this is a tragic loss. Joining me is Ronald Goldman, head of the Aviation Disaster Litigation Team at Baum, Headland, Aristi, and Goldman. Ron, the FAA says a broken fan blade caused the left engine to explode on the flight, and the NTSB found indications of metal fatigue caused by repeated bending. What companies could be found responsible legally for this? Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me on. First, let me express my uh, deep condolences for the uh, loss of the life of the passenger. Uh, the the companies responsible will be, first of all, Southwest Airlines. As a common carrier, they are responsible for the safety of the flight and all of the equipment used on the flight. Then, obviously, the engine manufacturer uh, will bear responsibility as well. Uh, that may well be uh, something that has to be uh, sorted out between Southwest Airlines and the uh, and the uh, engine manufacturer. So they both will bear responsibility at least. Now, what kind of damage control are Southwest, GE, Boeing, and the insurance companies doing at this point, and are they coordinating with each other? Well, they usually do coordinate with each other. Uh, their damage control has been to send condolences and to uh, uh, suggest that they are uh, deeply concerned about uh, the other passengers. Let it be clear that uh, almost all normally constituted passengers suffered a 22-minute uh, terror flight. Uh, they will bear the scars of this uh, very likely for the rest of their lives. So while we have one immense tragedy in the loss of life, we have others who will have suffered a great deal as well. So So the coordination will be between all all of those parties and their insurance carriers. So do you think that CEO Kelly, who said he was grateful that there were no reports of serious injuries except for, of course, the tragic death, is ignoring the post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, I don't know that yet, but uh, certainly uh, he d- did express that they were concerned for the other passengers. I hope that they will take responsibility for all of the injuries uh, on this flight. Uh, we have uh, uh, often had to battle uh, with the airlines uh, with respect to the injuries that they that did not manifest themselves in physical injuries. And uh, uh, so this is something that we have had to deal with for a very long time, uh, actually ever since 1989 when a similar episode happened on United 232, which was a case we handled. So this is not something that's completely new. And let me also suggest that there were really two failures on this flight. There's not just the fan, bail, uh, f- fan blade failure. There was also the failure of the uh, design to contain that event. There's never supposed to be an escape of material from 
the airplane's engine to the fuselage or wings uh, of, of, the, of the airplane. Uh, so th- this is a double failure uh, that has to be considered, not just the fan blade, but also why wasn't it contained? Ron, there was an incident with a Southwest flight, the same kind of airplane, the same kind of engine in 2016. Will that play into this? Absolutely it will, because that was the warning sign. You know, uh, in aviation terms, these are parts that are never supposed to fail. The, 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 the technical language would suggest that it should only fail one in a billion times. Um, it, these are never supposed to fail. When you get a failure uh, in one instance, you know that you have a problem. Then the question is, how do you go about attacking it? Uh, the... Uh, Suggestion that there was a, a uh, uh, an AD, uh, which is an airworthiness directive that was proposed uh, in 2016, but never really implemented. These are weak steps. There should have been alarm bells going off throughout the industry. We had a failure that should never have happened. Another one could happen. The mere fact that nobody died or was seriously injured uh, on on the first one, although there was terror. Um, should not have been uh, a matter of complacency. It should have been a matter of intense investigation at that point. I want to go back for a moment to the other passengers and post-traumatic stress disorder, any other smaller injuries they may have suffered. So is there legal precedent for liability based on emotional trauma or injuries that are not serious, or is it just that the airlines settled? Well, let me first suggest that these other injuries are and can be serious. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder uh, is something that can affect a person's life deeply uh, and and for the rest of their lives. So we don't look at these injuries as being minor or or, uh, insignificant. Secondly, yes, there is. As a matter of fact, we are involved right now in a case involving JetBlue, uh, where they had an engine fired uh, when they took off uh, uh, from uh, uh, Long Beach Airport uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, they had an engine fire, had to return to the airport, and we have uh, many passengers that we represent who suffered post-traumatic stress disorder from that event, and nothing blew up. So, yes, th- there's, there's considerable precedence for this. Every commercial plane in the sky is insured for anywhere from $1.85 billion to $2.1 billion. So, yes. so how do they decide? And, and is, the, is there a fight over this money when the money is there? Are the insurance companies looking to keep the cost down? Tell us how, how it works when you're negotiating this. Well, yes, there is, there is always a fight. And uh, we, we produce uh, information concerning each individual. There's, there's no lumping of all people together. Well, every human being is different and suffers differently. So we, we put together the information that's necessary to demonstrate the magnitude of the loss for each individual. We present it uh, to the, uh, uh, the appropriate uh, parties, uh, and uh, they, together with their insurance carriers, then uh, get their own evaluation. And then we always, almost always differ, uh, certainly at the early stages, um, and negotiate toward what we hope will be a solution that uh, uh, satisfies the needs of, of the passengers. They're usually looking for something that will deliver to them a sense of justice, that they have not been ignored and that their, that their uh, uh, needs have been met. So and that's what we try to uh, deliver. About 30 seconds here, Ron. So one quick question. 
Do these cases often land in a trial or settlement? They rarely land in a trial. They almost always uh, ultimately become settled. All right. Thank you uh, so much, Ron. Ronald Goldman, head of the Aviation Disaster Litigation Team at Baum, Headland, Aristi, and Goldman. President Trump addressed the job security of special counsel Robert Mueller and the man who hired him, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, in response to a reporter's question yesterday. They've been saying, I'm going to get rid of them for the last three months, four months, five months, and uh, they're still here. So we want to get the investigation over with, done with, put it behind us. But is the Mueller investigation fading into the background of Trump's thoughts after the raid on the offices of his private attorney, Michael Cohen? Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Kramer, a partner at the Berkeley Research Group. So, Jeff, does Trump have more to fear from prosecutors in the Southern District of New York than he does from Mueller? Well, it certainly hits, uh, hits closer to home. Uh, it's one thing to investigate uh, connections or meetings uh, with the Trump uh, campaign or administration and uh, people connected with the Russian government. That's, that's one thing. That's a fairly finite period of time. Once you start uh, talking about his personal lawyer, and by all accounts, a guy who's been fixing his problems uh, for a decade, uh, that is a, that's a Pandora's box, which should give the president uh, moments of pause. Judge Kimball Wood is going to decide who will conduct the review of the documents, hard drives, and the cell phone data seized from Cohen's office by the FBI to determine whether they're protected under attorney-client privilege. Should she depart from the regular practice of having a special team of prosecutors review the documents and the other things? Well, in a, in a normal case, that's what happens. Uh, you know, the uh, paint team, if you will, uh, reviews it. And if this was, you know, the United States versus Jim Smith, uh, that uh, is probably what would happen. Uh, however, because of the heightened sensitivity here, and certainly all the rhetoric back and forth, not really back and forth, but just a one way from the White House towards the Department of Justice and the FBI, with all sorts of accusations, uh, it is a safer way to go to have an independent third party review it. And, and that is not uncommon. It's just not as common as having a, a regular team team do it. So the prosecutors proposed three people who could fill the job of special master. Those three are ex-magistrate judges in the federal court in Manhattan. And the defense also put out four people. And one of them was a Trump confidant, was a joint, had a joint venture with Trump confidant Rudy Giuliani, another work for the federal prosecutor who is now in charge of the case. Which of those stand out to you? Uh, well, it's something you always want to look at any sort of bias, not even real bias, but perceived bias, so any sort of connection uh, with uh, uh, Giuliani or certainly the Trump organization in any way, shape, or form probably precludes it. It's always safer to get a former federal judge, either a former district court judge or a former magistrate judge, uh, to oversee the process. Now, that individual is obviously not physically going through all the hard drives. They'll, they'll hire another company to do that, but it's under their auspices. And usually, it's a former federal judge that's uh, retained to do that. So might she pick someone completely different? Absolutely. The, the, the list is just uh, some suggestions. It's always nice for federal judges if the parties can agree on uh, someone that makes life easier. Uh, but if the judge is not happy with any of the you know seven opportunities mm-hmm. there, uh, then she can uh, ask for either more names or go to someone she trusts. It- 
Cohen has dropped his defamation lawsuits against BuzzFeed and Fusion GPS over that infamous Steele dossier. His lawyer said that uh, given the recent events, which we know what he's referring to there, and the time and resources needed to prosecute those matters, we have dismissed the matters despite their merits. Is there likely more to them dropping the case than what they're saying? Um, well, you don't want to. Uh, the civil case may be stayed anyways. If there's a criminal proceeding, uh, so you don't need to fight the same battle on on many fronts. And you know, if it's if it's a defamation claim, you're obviously just looking for money. But the other side then gets to get into uh, depositions and get discovery, and you don't need to fight that battle while you're also fighting the uh, basically unlimited resources of the federal government. And may you got to pick and choose your battles. May he also not want to answer any questions in the litigation that might come up. That's I mean, that's what I meant by depositions. You know, okay. you don't want to lend yourself to any sort of discovery in a civil case, which could then be used against you in a far more important and dire proceeding uh, where you could go to prison. So that's not even a close call. You just uh, hit pause on that. Uh, you can bring it back later if things work out well for you. But like I say, that is not the biggest hurdle uh, that Mr. Cohen has right now is a defamation claim. So when this first started, we heard a lot about how, you know, Cohen has has you know has sworn that he would defend Trump and now we're hearing well might he flip what's your opinion yeah. of that yeah it's an interesting one i mean loyalty only goes so far and once they start looking at uh, prison prison doors, loyalty tends to go out the window. However, this might be the exception. Uh, Cohen, from what we know now, is not looking at the kind of jail time that a Manafort is looking at. You know, Paul Manafort is 70 years old, and he's looking for anywhere from 10 to 15 years in a pretty rock-solid case, if you read the indictment, with eight figures of money laundering going back and forth. Uh, that's not what Cohen is looking at. You know, if it's a campaign finance regulation violation, it's uh, you know, a slap on the wrist for the most part. Maybe there's something more there, but he's probably not looking at tremendous jail time. So he's at a fork in the road. If he uh, cooperates, uh, he's certainly going to be disbarred if he is uh, pleads guilty. A pardon or commutation is out the door if he cooperates. And at the end of the day, he's a disbarred lawyer who's just lost his biggest client. So that's one path. The other path is not to cooperate. Take whatever hits coming your way. At the end of the day, you're still a disbarred lawyer, but then maybe you get a vice presidency at a Trump organization and, you know, retire to a golf course. You know, so that's that's what he's looking at right now. And what about, we have about 30 seconds here, what about a pardon from Trump? Absolutely. You know, so if you don't cooperate, pardon is on the table. Uh, if you do cooperate, it's gone. So, you know, not cooperating has a couple exit ramps there that get you off scot-free. You know, a pardon is one way. Even if you're sentenced to prison, a commutation, which basically suspends that, is another way. So there's a lot more opportunities. And Mr. Cohn, who prides himself... All right, Jeff, we've got to leave it there. But I love the, the exit ramp analogy. That's Jeffrey Kramer, a partner at the Berkeley Research Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.